My friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You join me today in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And even though this is being recorded pretty close to this time of year, this is a very familiar story as we approach the Advent, the Christmas season, because this is it where it tells us about the birth of Jesus. Today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. I'm delighted you've decided to join me today. If you're here for the very first time then why not consider clicking on that link wherever you get your podcasts from and make the decision to make the in-depth study of the Word of God part of your daily routine. So with that all said, thank you again for joining me and I do trust I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now. Okay, as I said in the introduction today, we're looking at the gospel account of the birth of Jesus Christ, born of Mary. But the question I'm going to ask is why was Jesus of all places born in a stable? The text we're going to look at today is Luke chapter 1 verse 7. I'll begin by reading the entire text here because it's a fairly short passage and then we'll work through it expositionally verse by verse and then I'll try and put it all together and think and try and think about what it means. Why was Jesus born in these particular circumstances? So picking up the text in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. Okay, I'm sure virtually everybody listening to that today, this morning, know the story of the birth of Christ. You've heard that countless times before. We've seen it portrayed in many ways, particularly in the West. It's a very well-known narrative, isn't it? Uh, One that we encounter primarily, of course, in the Advent season at Christmas time, in programs, TV programs, movies, public spaces, hopefully particularly in church setting, but even maybe played out that little drama a little bit within our own homes in some way. However, friends, amidst all this familiarity, it's worth considering the actually the deeper meaning that lie behind the significance of this event and the way it's played out for us in this account. Why was Jesus Christ born in all places somewhere like a stable, 
somewhere like that. Why did he come into the world as a baby? But can we draw any elements, any meaning behind these references to swaddling clothes and the manger in which she's placed? That's what I want to explore this morning. And there's no better place to explore it because the Gospel of Luke is one of the two main accounts of Christ's birth in the Bible. And it includes all the details that we need to look at. So let's look at this passage together and see what little insights, what nuggets we can pull out of what must be a very familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of us. So with that context in mind, let me begin again at Luke chapter 1 and be taking a little moment to react to what it says in verse 1. Now you remind you what it stated. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. It actually says taxed in the uh, King James versions. This census occurred while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, there we are. So the events here are setting stage for the birth of Christ. And this passage continues to describe for us, goes on to describe Joseph's and Mary's journey from Galilee, specifically stating the city of Nazareth and that they come to this place called Bethlehem, which is also known at that time as the city of David. This migration was necessary because Joseph had to register with Mary, his betrothed wife, which it tells us was already expecting a child. So as we see this familiar narrative unfold, we find Mary gives birth to her firstborn son and wraps him in these what are described as swaddling clothes and places him in a manger, reminding us that all of this only happened because there was no room at the hill. So this uh, passage paints a picture of the detailed circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. It emphasizes particularly for us that the modest, the humble settings which form the backdrop to the story. So I'd just like us to take a moment to explore the significance of the details within the context of the passage. Did you notice that it says that it begins with this decree being issued by Caesar Augustus? And he was a, a Caesar whose reign spanned from 30 BC to 14 AD, so about 44 years. And this decree was in fact a census, one which was issued in the Roman world. Now it was not unusual for that to happen. They appeared, these censuses happened periodically. That was something that was done regularly by the Romans in terms of, of establishing the taxation levels on the amount of people they were able to tax. Now the mention here is of someone called Quirinius governing Syria. Now, for some people, that poses a potential historical discrepancy since Quirinius became governor in 6 AD. Now, you may not be aware of this discrepancy in some people's minds, but I think it's worth pointing out this to you in case anybody challenges you on the authenticity of the biblical account. Quirinius became governor of that area in 6 AD. That's not really disputed. However, this is very easy to explain here when you understand that previously he had a prior military position uh, got working in that area, which would have made him the person who is responsible for not only issuing, but enforcing such a, deg a degree as that by any previous governor. 
it would have made him responsible for issuing that decree and using him and describing him as governor is appropriate to the current audience, the people who will receive this letter, because for them, he was the governor at the time that this was written. The reference is actually really useful because it sits as a historical identifier that places these events within a historical context with real people named in the background. It also actually provides that political context into which Christ was born in terms of the Romans in charge and administering this location. As well as that, the passage offers us further insights into the, the very specific location of Christ's birth. Joseph and Mary are seen to journey to Bethlehem. And of course, that will align with the prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly Micah 5, which foretold that this was the actual place foretold of the Messiah's birth. Now, traditionally, December the 25th is the day we associate with the birth of Jesus, even though that in itself contradicts the ideas that the shepherds were tending flocks in their field, which would have been unusual during the winter. However, some sources indicate that the shepherds in that region did indeed graze their flocks in December, potentially supporting a December date. But that's not the important factor here. While the ex exact date may remain a mystery and as a sense unimportant, all we can say about it is an appropriate to celebrate Advent, to celebrate the Incarnation, and there has been developed a tradition, if you like, in church history of doing it in December the 25th. And it's kind of stuck now for over around about a thousand years. Okay, back to the passage, Luke chapter two. This is what is going to serve as the main background to the story of the birth of Christ. It's offering us the historical context text. It's detailing the family situation, Joseph and Mary. It talks about their journey. It gives us the location in Bethlehem, all of which is foreshadowed, foretold in the Old Testament. Therefore, all of it resonating with the Jewish audience receiving this letter that all of these events are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And within that, the broad message is clear. The birth of Jesus is a momentous event in world history with profound significance, not only relevant to the people there, culturally, the Jewish people in that place at that time, but remains that way uh, in terms of histor historicity. Remember, Matthew's gospel was primarily written to Jews and his purpose was mainly to demonstrate that Jesus is in fact the long awaited Messiah. But on the other hand, Luke's gospel here, he's taking a very slightly different perspective. He's not writing primarily towards Jewish readers, but rather to a broader audience, including Greek and Romans and people in authority. So Luke's emphasis is on revealing not just the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but the providential fulfillment of God's plans in every way. So he doesn't focus as much on the prophetic fulfillment of scripture, quite as much as Matthew for that reason, but he does focus on what it might mean in terms of God's application of his plan in the world through Jesus. So he's writing it into a political background, if you like, a cultural, social background. Now, Matthew, he, of course, highlighted 
how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, but Luke emphasizes how God will orchestrate local and world, world events, in fact, to fulfill his divine plan. It's the kingdom of God, the end plan, the end game that is in mind here. And Matthew reveals how Christ is the fulfillment, not only of the Old Testament prophecies, but of the Old Testament expectations, uh, which Luke showcases through the providential working of God in bringing about these events and the others that we will, he will record for us in his gospel account. So the passage underscores the importance of Bethlehem as the Old Testament uh prophesied birthplace of Christ that's true but, the, but the, also highlighting the fact that Mary and, and Joseph take together this arduous, ar, ar, arduous journey uh, the, the, the remark how remarkable just that is considering she is about to give birth to the child remember Ma Mary is literally nine months pregnant at this time and yet she has to accompany Joseph on this trip now, some have said she wasn't required to make the journey, but her motivation remains clear here. Possibly the reason for her willingness to go is in fact she may very well have been aware of the prophesied birthplace of the coming Messiah. So it was her straightforward concern that the birth of what she knew, knew to be God's uh, God's Messiah that she was carrying, that that situation should not be left to fall by the well wayside. So it could well be that she insisted on going. And then, of course, she gives birth. Gently described for us, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, adding the caveat. All of this happened because there was no room at the inn. Now, one crucial point can be missed in this is the fact that this verse establishes the, no, the notion that Jesus was Mary's, did you notice the word, firstborn. I believe this actually counters the belief in those who teach the perpetual virginity of Mary, a doctrine that is held on to in some Christian traditions. They assert that Mary remained a virgin, eternal, even after the birth of Jesus. Luke is writing this, remember, around 60 AD, and he uses the term specifically firstborn. Therefore, he's indicating that Mary had other children. And of course, this aligns with the New Testament biblical record and our historical understanding that Mary and Joseph had a family together beyond and after Jesus lives. Additionally, the passage is here to paint a real picture of humility. Even fact that there's a certain amount of obscurity, anonymity, quiet secrecy surrounding the birth of Jesus, maybe considering a kind of potential persecution we coming on, on the first on, on the younger on the firstborn male children that will follow uh, and has drawn attention to us particularly in Matthew. But here we see this gentle picture of him being brought forth and Mary wrapping Jesus in swaddling clothes. Now, the term swaddling clothes simply means wrapped in strips of cloth. Now, normally this has a, was a task given to people who were surrounding the birth of the child, like midwives and that here. But here we see again, it's Mary alone who is caring for the Christ child. It also says she lays him in a manger 
a manger, I'm sure you know, is just simply a wooden feeding trough for animals. So this is a really simple, humble, almost, you might say, rustic setting. And it serves, it is meant to serve and stand in stark contrast to the grandeur one might expect for the birth of a saviour, a new king. So the reference to having to stay in the stable at the rear of an inn highlights again the humble circumstances in which this all occurs. In the traditional nativity scenes, there's often depictions of, it's a sort of a cosy and a serene atmosphere, isn't it? Sort of with a backlight. But the reality, I suspect, is much different. Instead here, Mary and Joseph found themselves probably, actually, if archaeological evidence is true, in one of the hollowed out caves at the back of the area of Bethlehem, where the animals were kept. The hillside behind the housed area had caves hollowed out to allow the keeping of animals there. And it's very likely if you think that animals lived there long term, there was probably a tremendous smell and stench of the animals. So not a glorious arrival by any means in that sense. So why do you think, Luke, particularly here, one of the two main accounts, the, the accounts that emphasize this, why is he choosing to focus so much on the humble, seemingly un almost uncomfortable conditions that are around surrounding the birth of Jesus? Well, one reason might reasonably to say Luke's purpose here is his main emphasis wants to be to make us realize the humility and the simplicity of the Messiah, of Christ Jesus coming. His birth in these circumstances will reflect the humility that will characterize his entire earthly life. He's setting an example for us as believers to follow. This passage should serve as a reminder that God doesn't always arrange things in ways that are grand or even in ways that we might expect or imagine. It challenges us to consider the unexpected and have an attitude of humility in, the way, in recognizing how God may work out things in our lives. It encourages us to embrace the simple, to live a humble lifestyle, recognizing that God's greatest purposes can still be fulfilled even in the lowest earthly settings. And his presence is not necessarily, not even often, confined to those events where they appear grand or even just comfortable. So for Jesus on that day upon his arrival in the world, there was no room in the inn. There was no room in the world for Jesus. The secular world today still makes less and less room for Jesus. We don't have room for him in our societies. We don't have time for him in so many ways. Recently, I heard of someone who was interviewed in one of the you know, microphones stuck in someone's face in a shopping centre, what you were called a shopping mall, of what they thought about how it was decorated and the music that was played. And the man said, and I, I jest you not, the man's remark was he was unhappy that people were trying to mix religion into everything nowadays, even Christmas, he said. And what this tells me, what this story, what all of this tells me is this is not going to be the last time that there will, in a sense, be no 
room for Jesus in the inn. As our countries make less and less room for him, that is just a continuation and outworking of that which was seen and experienced here at his birth. His birth. And it seems to me our countries, our societies, certainly in the West, are making less and less room for him. Even our churches, it appears to me, are making less and less room for Jesus. But like I say, none of this is new. It's all been happened before. It's mentioned here and it's even mentioned in terms of the New Testament, in terms of churches in the book of Revelation, where it points out the churches aren't making room for Jesus. But Revelation 3 verse 10, 20 reminds us always, even in this situation, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door to him, I will come in. So the call there is individually for us to make room for Jesus. The church in the background to that text, the one in Revelation, is actually described as being self-sufficient. So in a sense, they've shut the Lord out of that community. And he's saying, God's coming here. And he's saying, even in spite of this, he's just beyond the door. Open the door, he will come in. He will come in and have fellowship with you. So what the message here is, the takeaway from this is don't shut Jesus out. You know, it's nice to have a party at Christmas, but it's a real shame. So that at a societal level, Jesus himself doesn't seem to be even invited to the parties these days. And you probably know what I'm going to say next. There's no room for him at the inn. There's no room for him in our country at a societal level. There's no room for him in churches. But sometimes there's no room for him even in the hearts and minds of individual men and women. What the inhabitants of Bethlehem did here and is documented here to a great extent was done in ignorance but many today don't make room for Jesus from a position of willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. They refuse to give him a place in their hearts in their feelings, in their affections, in their thoughts, even in their view of life. Their wishes, their decisions, their actions and their daily conduct, all of them do not take into account Jesus and what he would want. Thus they deny themselves the greatest privilege and incur the greatest loss possible in their lives by closing the door to him. You see, God was able here to even use the decree of a pagan emperor and the willful blindness, ignorance of the people in a small town called Bethlehem to accomplish his will and to fulfill all his prophecies that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem, but yet he would be born alone in poverty and in a real true sense rejected by most. This decree of the pagan emperor was issued way off in a distant city called Rome, but the treatment of the people in Nazareth is the thing that brought Mary and Joseph to this position, to this place in Bethlehem, all of which at the end of the day had been foretold by Old Testament prophecy. So the birth of Jesus, as described here by Luke, demonstrates that God will continue to work through all kinds of peoples, all kinds of situations, even 
willful blindness to accomplish his will. And if we don't get anything else out of that, then take that home with you today. Because one day, you too are going to be in a difficult situation, maybe not as dramatic as, as Mary's, but still a difficult situation. And our call here, I believe, is to be like Luke records for us. Mary doesn't face this situation and say, why me, Lord, why me? Just know that God is still going to be able to use that use that situation for, to bring all kinds of things to pass in your life, all kinds of things in order to accomplish his will, providing you leave open the door for Jesus to come into your life, into those situations. The Son of God was going to come and visit planet Earth, and he came and was born in a stable of all places. Kings, queens, presidents, they announce their revival with great pomp and circumstances, don't they? But in contrast, when God visited the earth and placed his son, the new Messiah, he who would be the new king of all humanity, he placed his son, his, birth, his son was born in a stable, nothing more than an animal shelter, probably a cave with no special attendants present, no one to lay the newborn king anywhere except in a, a, in a wooden trough that was meant to contain animal food. And those simple, humble events descri described here divide history for us even to this day. Ever since our calendar has been divided into two parts, before and after this monumental event. Yet at the time, nothing more than animals witnessed this birth. The visitors didn't come along later. So, what does this all mean? Why is it important for us to take this on board? Well, I think the reason that Luke focuses on the humility and the ordinariness of the Messiah, Jesus Christ's first appearances, is it says, look, he's arriving, he has come, and he's come as our saviour, but he's born in a stable and humble circumstances so that he can be a sympathetic saviour, an empathetic saviour, a saviour who understands what it is to be human and live in very ordinary circumstances. Hebrews reminds us of this context where it says, that we have such a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, lets us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of help. Now, of course, the writer of the Hebrews is focusing on the priestly aspect of Christ's ministry, but he's pointing out that he is able to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, that he has been through all of them, just as we have. And that's what's going on here. That's why Luke says Jesus came born as a baby in the very lowest of circumstances, and that we, that we should recognize that because of that, he's able to sympathize with us. He's able to empathize with us. He understands 
who we are. He understands our weaknesses. He understands sometimes even our helplessness. His mother wrapped him in swaddling clothes. He also knows what it means to be lonely. He will know in his life what it means to be abandoned and he, uh, even by his friends. And here from his very birth, he, he, he has experienced complete and utter poverty. There was no room for even at the infirm in that day. And he was born in a way that means he will grow up to understand and experience and feel any and all possible rejection that we might feel in our lives. And the Christian story is about an Asian born baby who in a sense was nothing more than an international migrant. Jesus, after all, was born in a borrowed barn and later he would be crucified on a cross and actually be buried in a borrowed grave. In other words, Jesus was homeless for most of his life. This gospel account of Luke's has tremendous power for the world in which we live because it really tells us to remember that God is in and can be found in all kinds of circumstances. If you know the Lord, if you know this Lord, then you know that you have a sympathetic Saviour, one who understands you. We have a Saviour who will understand our loneliness. He will understand our poverty, if that's how we're having to live. He'll even understand our sense of rejection when people betray us. He understands also injustice and hardship because both of those fell upon him in his life. And he knows it because he's been through all these things himself. Regardless of what situation you're facing, what you're going through in this life, and I do know, friends, that sometimes life can be tough. Remember that Jesus has gone through this sort of thing also. Christians, you see, we Christians are meant to be examples of people who simply understand that God has provided a saviour, but he's provided a saviour who identifies with us totally in the sense that he came as an ordinary man and that he understands in every way what we might potentially go through. You know, there was a story from medieval times of a European king who a couple of times a year would take off his royal garments and dress as a peasant and go out and live among the people. And his staff were always worried about him doing this. But the king said in that story, I cannot rule my people unless I know how they live. Well, here God says, I'm going to give you a saviour, a saviour who knows what you're going through, what you will go through, because he's going to go through it himself. And he is able by now sitting on the right hand of God by the power of his Holy Spirit to give grace to you in any situation to help you make it through. You just simply have to accept it and take it. Okay, friends, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. I'm so glad you've been with me. And if you are here for the first time, 
then why not make the decision to make this the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life also by subscribing and that way you'll never miss another single episode. That way you'll have the in-depth study of the Bible become part of your daily life. Also, if you are here for the first time and you're not seeing links or an episode notes page, why not quickly visit us where we're hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com because there you'll find lots of ways to connect to the ministry and get additional free resources. There's always an episode notes page and there's also every day a complete transcript of everything I say, freely available, free for you to use in whatever way you find helpful. You'll also find links there to places like the socials, the YouTube channel. There's even a place where you can partner with this ministry to enable it to stay free, freely available all around the world for thousands of people in over 185 countries. You can do that there. But having said that, the main thing is you're here. I'm glad you're here. And please do come back again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.